Hi, and welcome to Forest of the Future, the podcast series where we look at how innovation in FSC can help save our forests. Because we all know that forests play a key role in combating climate change and the biodiversity crisis that we're facing. In this series, we explore how innovation, especially within tech tools, but also more broadly, can help us protect our forests and support the mission of FSC, which is to ensure responsible management of our forests worldwide. In today's episode, we are going to look beyond the tech realm and dive into a very complex topic. We are going to dive into free and prior informed consent, or AFPEC, as it's called for those familiar with FSC. In short, AFPEC is a requirement to ensure that indigenous peoples are not only informed about the management on their lands, but also consent to that management prior to it being conducted. The concept of AFPEC isn't new. As a matter of fact, it's one of the fundamental human rights. However, all too often it isn't implemented or it's implemented poorly. And as a result, Aboriginal people all over the world become marginalized in the management of their own territories. And this is despite the fact that Indigenous people actually own more than 25% of the global forest area. And that these areas are the most valuable from a biodiversity perspective, with more than 80% of the world's biodiversity within their lands. The innovation that we're going to dive into is on how FSC in Canada seems to have been able to solve some of the really hard challenges of free prior and informed consent. They did this through dedicated work with both the forest management industry and with the representatives of indigenous communities. And we're going to take a closer look at how the rest of the world might learn from this Canadian experience, both within FSC, but also in a wider society. To help you learn much more about this topic, which I admit to knowing all too little about, I've asked Pamela Peru and Francois Dufresne to join me online. Pamela is part of the Guardian River First Nation in Ontario, Canada, and she helped FSC find solutions for AFPIC both in Canada and globally in her role as a technical writer on guidance documents. Francois is the president of FSC Canada and a long-term advocate for the need for better solutions for inclusions of Indigenous peoples in FSC. Hi, both of you, and welcome to the podcast. And Pamela, could we just start with you? Could you start with the basics for unknowledgeable people like myself. What is FPIC and why is it so important? I'm going to talk about FPIC in the context of resource development, which of course is what your audience is interested in. The right to free prior and informed consent is a right of Indigenous peoples to do a few things, to grant, withhold, and withdraw permission to development proposals that will affect their rights and responsibilities related to specific areas of land or specific resources that they consider to be their territorial lands and their ancestral resources. So it's important uh, to know and to think of FPIC as a right and it's being protected or really it's being articulated in international instruments like the United Nations uh, Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. But also people will talk about uh, free prior and informed consent as a process. It's a way of implementing the right. And also, like we do in, in FSC, we talk about FPIC as a principle. It's a set of 
rules and obligations that help us understand how we can better protect Indigenous peoples. So first and foremost, it's a right, but it can also be thought of as a process and a principle. How does that actually work on the ground? That's a great question. And that gets to the nuts and bolts of the importance of of free prior informed consent. So I can step back a little bit. Free prior and informed consent, while it sounds like a big continuous concept, it's actually four separate ideas. So free means that the group that is being asked for permission is able to do so without being coerced into a decision. They're not being manipulated. They're not being intimidated into making a decision on a proposal. So they're free to make the decision that they want. Prior is a very important and probably the newest addition into this idea of free prior informed consent, because actually free informed consent has been around for quite some time and it comes out of international law, but the idea of prior introduces this important temporal aspect of the concept of the right, because what we found over years of practicing free informed consent is that when a proponent or forest company in our case is asking for permission, the timing of asking for permission is just as important as asking because if all the engineering, if all the permits, if all of the work is actually done and then the forest company goes and asks permission, there's almost a disincentive for the people involved in giving permission to actually become involved because they don't need to say yes or no. Everything has already been done except for the actual cutting of the tree. They don't feel involved. Engagement should be happening at the very earliest stage. Ideally, best case, before a forest concession anywhere in the world, if there are Indigenous peoples, uh, there is even handed out a process of free prior and informed consent would happen. But that's not typically how it happens. So the next best thing we can do is before a forest company gets too far down a planning process, before any decisions administrative or operationally are made that could affect Indigenous rights, that is when an engagement process based on free prior informed consent should be had. So that prior aspect is really important in helping forest companies answer that question of when should we do this kind of work? It's prior to any decisions getting made. Informed, of course, is pretty important and and self-explanatory. The information that gets shared between a forest company and an Indigenous group of people with a collective right, that information needs to be shared to the extent that the people you're seeking permission from, they have to be able to give that permission knowing the extent of the impacts that your proposal might have on their rights. So it's not as simple as handing over a 500 page development plan that used to be previous practice 
and the expectation being that the community themselves would go through that written, likely, and, and mapped out development plan. Today, our understanding of informed and what that actually means goes a lot deeper into understanding how certain, for example, forest management concepts or ecological theories that forestry is based on, how those actually affect and how they determine the outcomes of forest management. So what will the land look like afterwards? Being able to communicate that kind of information to anybody that has a right to FPIC becomes really important. So being informed and, and ensuring that Indigenous peoples are informed and being able to uh, support that process is incredibly important. And then, of course, the last part of FPIC is consent. If we could probably rename this principle, we might say free, prior, and informed decision. But consent is actually the decision that a rights holder has. So again, thinking of those three things, they can grant permission, they can give consent, they can withhold it or withdraw it. So FPIC is actually made up of really those four important components. And the process of bringing it down to the ground is not just breaking down those four components, which is that's very common. There's a lot of guidebook out in the world that break those four elements down and talk about them in theory and in practice. The art of what we try to do in FSC is bring those four things together in a process. What does that look like? Who has to be involved? How many decisions are actually being made? Because another really important aspect of FPIC on the ground and to understand is that the granting of consent, the giving of permission is not a one-time action. The FPIC decision process in seeking consent, seeking a decision from an Indigenous rights holder should happen at the beginning of a forest management planning process, but it also happens often and at many different levels throughout a forest management process. It actually sounds more like it's a dialogue, really. Is that rightly understood? The process of reaching a decision is based on dialogue. That's a very good way of putting it. And I would say dialogue with the real meaning of dialogue, which is it's a two-way exchange of ideas, of strategies, and of information. Consultation, which most people are familiar with, is very much a one-way process. Consultation is about a forest company handing over information, saying to a rights holder, this is what we're doing, what do you think? There's no requirement necessarily in a consultation process for that force company to do something with any of the information that they receive back. Dialogue and a consent process implies that when a company receives back information, when they hear from the Indigenous group the potential impacts that their proposal might have on their rights, there's an expectation that something is done with that information. 
The expectation would be, just as an example, that a forest management plan is changed because a proposed action is shown to have a direct effect on an Indigenous right. It wouldn't be acceptable for a forest company to say, I heard what they said, I received their information, and I took it into consideration which is typical of a consultation process. Now they have to take that one step further. We've heard it. We've worked with the information. We've made adjustments. And we've taken this new proposal back to the community. And we've shared our changes. And we've asked them again, do our changes affect your rights? And if they do, how do they do it? And how can we make changes to mitigate those impacts? So Mm. I think dialogue is really a a key word to reaching the decision or the consent decision in the process. Mm -hmm. Does it mean that an Indigenous community can actually veto a forest management plan? Veto. One of my favorite words, it's a small (laughs) four-letter powerful word. (laughs) Veto, it implies absolute power. And there are a few people in the world that have veto powers. Um, But in the context of resource development, free prior and informed consent, and if we think about the international instruments and the laws that support it, And I'll just name the one that's the most obvious and the one that we talk about in FSC, and that's UNDRIP, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. A lot of the articles in UNDRIP talk about the different elements of FPIC, but also talks about free prior informed consent as a whole right. But Article 46 in UNDRIP talks about the rights of states and the rights, individual rights of people. And the rights of others could be third parties. And it says that all the rights talked about in UNDRIP do not trump all of the other rights that are, you know, important and part of our system of human rights in the world. But they have to operate alongside one another. So what that means in the context of forest management is It is well within the right of any Indigenous rights holder to withhold, withdraw, or not grant permission. But there are also the rights of the forest company and and other recreation outfitters or guide outfitters, anybody who may have a right associated with that land and those resources. It is within their rights to assert their own access, their own decision-making authority over the same piece of land. So veto implies that if somebody said no, there was no other mechanism available for anybody else to question or to change that decision or to have another consideration be put in place. But we know, especially here in Canada, we have quite a developed legal system that the laws and the courts are always a mechanism that forest companies are able to use. And that alone 
removes the entire concept of veto. So I think that the idea of veto and the even just the term veto usually pops up in conversations when people fear the effect of a no decision and when they're not aware or they don't have experience with dialogue. I like the term that you use. When they haven't had a positive experience where dialogue has led to a mutual understanding and a mutual acceptance of benefits that can be derived from the forest sector. I think that is when people don't understand the potential good that can arise from the sharing of information across knowledges between different worldviews, that is when the idea of veto will pop up in a conversation. So it's when fear creeps in. And you actually touched upon the fact that in Canada you have a lot of laws, but can we just zoom in on Canada for a bit? Francois, um, can you help me set the scene on the Canadian perspective a bit? Why is FPEC so important in Canada? What is the amount of territory that we're talking about here? Look, I, I'm a non-Indigenous person. I don't have the pretension to put myself in this in the body of an Indigenous person, and I don't want to... Uh, do that. First and foremost, I will certainly recognize the fact that here we're located in Montreal and Central Montreal, we are located on the Mohawk, uh, Kanawaki traditional territory. And I want to make sure that this is uh, recorded in this podcast. And, and why I'm doing this is because we are just uh, invitees on the traditional lands of uh, First Nations in Canada. First Nations have been here on this in this country for millenniums. And we are, as a non-Indigenous, been present here for a few hundreds of years. So it's a colonial situation. And that's why FPIC is so important here in this context, in the principle three of FSC, is to present a, a social license to manage responsibly the forest resources in Canada. And why? It's because there is, right now in Canada, 1.6 million Indigenous people in this country, spread it over 600 communities right across the land, coast to coast, east to west, and 75% at least are located in the forest. And most of the time, they're the first one impacted by forest activities and the last one to benefit from it without their knowledge. And this is this has to end. And that's why FSC took the stand to make sure that these principles are put in place. Now, we've been doing this, as Pamela mentioned, trying in a way, imperfectly doing this for uh, the last 20, 25 years. FSC has been uh, present in, in this country, but the, with consent, but it was only a portion of it. Now we want to make sure that we implement the full meaning of uh, the UN Declaration uh, of the Rights of of the indigenous people as uh, declared in 2007. So that's why for us, we decided to go this way. Don't forget that we have four chambers in Canada. We are the only national office along with New Zealand, I believe, uh, a, uh, in an Aboriginal chamber. And as you know, with our governance structure, we need the, the consensus build up over the, all chambers of uh, our national office through the uh, um, then development group and the board of director to implement any changes to the standard. So can you just take us through? It sounds like adding a forced chamber was one of the steps on the way to actual implementation of FPIC. Can you take us through what else you've done to actually make sure that FPIC was implemented on the ground? The, the 
first step where the, the, when you look at the, the situation on the ground is you have a certificate holder uh, who wants to implement FPIC. There is, at the beginning, a, a request from the certificate holder to be allowed to a delegation of the control of the management activities from the people that are actually occupying the land, from First Nations, from the indigenous people. They need to provide a consent of, of, of these activities being made on the ground. So that at the get-go, at the start, it creates a, a, a very complicated situation where you need to have uh, full consent. And it requires also that you provide enough capacity. And that's where the priority is so important here. That's described by Pamela. You need to provide all the information, the analytical knowledge and how this will be carried out. And you need to uphold the rights of the indigenous people in the process to make sure that all their custom culture of indigenous people as defined by UNDRIP are, are well taken care of. That's how FSC, the new FSC standard in Canada is trying to, to work through, and that's very important, a binding agreement. And there's a definition for that through FPIC. There, there needs to be a binding uh, agreement. It doesn't mean it's static. And that's what Pam was trying to explain. It's a journey, essentially. So it's going to be developed at different level of complexity through a short, mid, and long-term dialogue and, and relationship buildup. Okay, I'm trying to keep track here. Okay, so you've set of, a set of guidelines, it sounds like, through the standard? Yep. Of yep. how to set up this agreement. How would, how, if I'm a forest company... A forest manager. How would I know who should give consent and who should be contacted, etc.? Have you done anything there as well? Well, most of the time on large uh, forest management units, you can have from half a dozen to actually 10, 15, 20 communities that you need to deal with. So you need to uh, reach out to the leadership of uh, each of these communities and they have the right to self-identify their representation and how these uh, leaders will speak in the, in, um, in the name of the community. And essentially, you have to also talk directly to the rights holders, as described by the Canadian Constitution. These are things that the civic holder has no other choice but to, to tackle. And it takes time. This dialogue, this trust uh, relationship will take years to develop. It doesn't happen overnight. Mm-hmm. How do we verify then? How does FSC verify FPEC and... and... How do we know when it's required or not? Well, going back to the uh, the binding agreement, the auditor will have to recognize in this process that the there's sufficient trust relationship uh, and mutual respect between the certificate holders and all the communities and on the forest management unit, leading to this this journey of implementing FPIC on, on the ground. The one thing that's very important to mention here, uh, the certificate holder doesn't have the responsibility as defined uh, by the constitution with uh, the government. That's still today a very complex situation. The certificate holder has to, to implement what it, it is under its control to implement the, the spirit of FPIC as defined by UNDRIP. So is FSC going beyond what's required by the federal legislation, or at, at the current moment, yes, we have our um, FPIC guidance document developed by Pamela primarily on a voluntary basis. It is setting a roadmap on that the certificate order accept to to follow that goes uh, well beyond 
what is required by provincial forced and new laws when it comes to consultation with First Nations. Mm-hmm. Pamela, I'd like actually to return to you because from your perspective, what's new in the approach that FSC is doing here? I think what is new, perhaps what is different compared to what has happened with governments in particular. And I think that's a really important point that Francois brought up, the expected relationship of of a third party, which would be a forced company, is different than the nation-to-nation relationship that Indigenous peoples have in Canada. So that's another very much Canadian expression that is the level of expectation, the level of the relationship between Indigenous peoples in Canada and the federal government is expressed as a nation-to-nation relationship. And that is based on the fact that, as Francois talked about, at the time of contact here in Canada between European settlers, treaty negotiations were the way of doing business. People got to access resources European settlers got to access the resources on Canadian lands because they negotiated treaties with Indigenous groups. And it was recognized at that time during these negotiations dating back to the 1700s that the Indigenous peoples of these lands had complex governance systems. And they had a way of doing business that that actually benefited settlers who arrived here in terms of ensuring that even settlers themselves had access to resources so that they could survive. So I think the process of having to remind the Canadian people and Canadian governments of this historical process that went on for a couple of hundred, you know, 200 years of negotiating treaties is really important to today's context. But as we've said, forest companies, they don't have the same fiduciary responsibility. They don't have that trust-like responsibility that a federal government has, but they are in effect, in some ways, an agent of the state. They they hold a license to harvest the trees and to harvest the resources on territories where free, prior, and informed consent has not been granted. So, and that is just the way our system works in Canada. There may be other places in the world where forced concessions are only handed out um, for short periods of time and then taken back by the state and then handed out again. And in those circumstances, you can see how introducing something like FPIC has the potential to actually be implemented at the highest level at the state government level. When you have a system like ours in Canada where long-term licenses are handed out and those licenses can be renewed without being transferred back to the government, there is very little opportunity to implement what we would consider to be a true and full free prior informed consent process. 
But what FSC is trying to do is the next best thing. The forest company is being asked within their control to the best of their ability to use all their networks, their associations, and their technical capacity, that's what we would call the sphere of influence here in Canada, to uphold and respect the rights of Indigenous people. So this essentially principle three. And there are many different ways that a company can actually do that better in some ways than government. So a, a great example would be at the level of sharing what the landscape actually has on its surface. So our forest inventory data. Government has access to forest inventory data. They might do their own inventory. But ultimately, the best group that would have the most up-to-date, the most relevant inventory is going to be the forest company. So when discussions happen around the changing of the annual allowable cut or when discussions happen about economic or social benefits that might arise, the best information is actually going to come from the forest company. So forest companies play an incredibly important role in actually being the suppliers of the best and most up-to-date information. And they can also, there's within the regulatory system of Canada for Forestry, there is enough flexibility in that system where they can choose the roadmap that we've laid out in forest certification. They can choose to take a road in that process that is leaning more heavily towards the recognition of Indigenous rights. And that is really role modeling to state governments on how to best recognize and, and uphold Indigenous rights. And I think I th that is probably, to go back to your question, what is new and what is different, it's moving FPIC, Free Pride Informed Consent, from a theoretical concept to actual practice on the ground. And the guidance that we've developed, while they're not normative, they're not required, again, they're guidelines to help support forest managers and to help communities as well. The seven-step process that we talk about is very practical. It's very doable. We have forest companies that are doing it in Canada. Mistakes get made, but at least we know that it's possible. And we know a couple of things, and Francois brought it up. It takes time. And it's, we did something really important in FSC when we passed policy motion 40, and that allowed us to adapt some of the indicators to allow people to have time to make decisions. Because we all know the worst thing to do is to force somebody to make a decision when they haven't yet understood all the consequences. Because any person is going to try to protect themselves from consequences and in the case of forest management, when you're asking for a yes or no answer, likely you'll get a no. So to prevent, because we have this whole audit cycle that we have to deal with, to prevent that forcing of a decision in a time frame that was unrealistic, 
policy motion, motion 40 allowed us to put in a process that allows force managers and companies to express to the auditor their level of satisfaction of engagement. So it's the verification question you asked, I think is really important. It's the auditor in the absence of a binding agreement, being able to ask the rights holder, the Indigenous group, are you satisfied with the process so far? We know you don't have an ethic agreement, if that's the case, but are you satisfied? Do you feel that you're moving towards that consent decision? And I think that's a really important aspect that in a way demonstrates and role models relationship building rather than having a, a government through a legal process or a legal step solely rely on rules of evidence. Auditing and the rules of FSE require dialogue. That word that you mentioned earlier, it requires a conversation. And I think that is really the, the foundational change that FSE and the process of FPIC can really introduce and has introduced into Canada. So it sounds like to me, as an outsider, that some of the benefits and opportunities are potential, at least, for improved relationship between the forest companies and the Indigenous people whose territories they're operating on, and also that there is an opportunity for influence and for being increasingly informed about what's going on at an earlier stage than compared to standard practice. Can you take us through what are some of the challenges of implementing FPIC then could be and, and how they can get overcome? Well, I'll, I'll start with something Francois mentioned, and and that is in Canada in particular, our forest management units are rather large. And the larger the area of your forest management unit, the more likely you are to have more communities. And so in Canada, uh, one of the challenges we have is under our constitution, we have three categories of Indigenous peoples. We have First Nations, Inuit, and Métis. And in terms of forestry in Canada, most Inuit lands are located above the operable forest. So there's no real forest operations in their territories typically, but we have Métis and First Nations groups that are sharing rights and have responsibilities over areas of land. So one of the big challenges that we do have is in our seven-step process, we've outlined that the very first step is to identify who has rights, who are the Indigenous people, and what are those rights? Well, when you're trying to get a consent decision and you run into a situation where your forest management unit may have 20 different communities over an area of, say, a, a million hectares, and each of those communities is affected differently, the complexity of a consent decision rises exponentially. So one forest company might be located in an area where they have two communities, 
forestry is the dominant sector and it is a high priority for those local communities to engage in the forest sector. And so there, there could be a certain kind of very mutually beneficial relationship. In another part of our country, you could have a forest company that is working with 20 communities, but oil and gas and mining are the dominant sectors in terms of priority for those communities. And forestry, from a resource development perspective, is actually a low priority because the communities themselves are inundated with requests from these other sectors that have long-term effects and impacts on their territories. So while forestry affects them, the prospect of having an open pit mine in the center of your territory will occupy their entire resource department and their time mm -hmm. and efforts. So the ability to even engage in a conversation and in a dialogue around free prior informed consent could definitely be hampered by those kinds of situations. So it's so context specific. That's the challenge. There's not going to be any process, even our seven step process, while it's laid out and it sounds and, and seems very practical, really everything has to be thought of on a case by case basis because the external influences that are outside of forestry will have a lot of impact on how communities react to the request for an FPIC process. How does the company deal with that? How can that be solved? Can it be solved? I, I think for the cases that we've been able to look at and for the companies that are FSC certified that are working really hard to stay true and, and to the intent of principle three and, and FSC in general, what they have told us is the way they make it through is first recognizing these mm -hmm. situations. I think a, a big mistake that a company could make is walking into a community believing that they are the only and the highest priority of a community or that they should be the highest priority of a community recognizing mm -hmm. that these communities are under incredible pressure and are economically and socially deprived compared to the rest of Canada and just really understanding the context in which this community is op each community is operating i think is a first step to building a trusting relationship because when you start the dialogue with a clear understanding of where people are starting from and you respect that and you can build a process that only improves the situation but doesn't put more burden, you are already bringing a benefit to that community. And forest mm -hmm. company and FSC companies have shared examples of offering, for example, just offering maps that are geospatially referenced, like actual accurate maps that they can share with the community because they just happen to have them as part of their forest management unit and being able to share important information with communities so that they can also 
be informed when they're challenged with other kinds of resource development. There's a lot of activities and actions that a forest company can perform that puts them more in line with the community as an ally Mm -hmm. versus being a competitor or being just a proponent that is in the process of taking. Becoming an ally and seeking mutual benefit is, I think, an attitude of a company and it's reflected in the processes that they choose for engagement. And ultimately, that's the seven-step guideline is trying to reflect and trying to help forest companies adopt and present themselves with the attitude that we respect that Indigenous peoples have rights and we have an important role to play in the protection and implementation of those rights. And this is what we can do. Mm -hmm. Essentially, that's the seven-step process. Mm-hmm. Francois, I'd like to return to you because it sounds like so one part of this is the seven-step process, but it sounds like there's potentially a role as well for you and your team in trying to prepare the forest companies and in actually being respectful and mindful and entering into the dialogue. Our role is to provide the training, is to provide information, to provide the guidance. And uh, that's what we've been doing with implementation of the new standard mm-hmm. with seminars and webinars and, and regional interaction. So that's what we can do. And also to, to help the auditors to, to have a common understanding and what is the, the logic and the, the intent of the new standard and then the tools around it when it comes to Indigenous rights and ethic so that everybody's treated the same way, especially because it is a, a quite a, a change where taking this to a whole new level. And we understand that uh, there are 50 million hectares certified in Canada. We don't want to lose anybody. We want to give enough time to current certificate holders to have a, a successful transition. That's one thing. And also, one thing you need to recognize, it's not everybody that's the same level of competence, knowledge, and, and proficiency to, to implement these very complex concepts. So therefore, we try to design the system to make sure that we recognize where do you start in the cycle with the seven steps. Somebody can start at a very beginner level, like not even step one, but step zero, and then give a chance to first to get into the system being certified, but with the uh, the clear understanding that you've got to go through the seven steps of the, uh, the guidance over time. It, it, it's a journey, as I mentioned that a couple of times, and uh, you don't become an expert from day one. And that's a message we, we pass, and that's the, uh, the support we're trying to provide as FSC Canada, that yes, you can be a, a company that's FSC certified, recognizing where you're starting from. And as long as you're in, in good faith and uh, your intent is to develop a uh, true, fair, mutually respectful and a relationship with all Indigenous communities on the forest management unit. And that's our role. It's, it's really clear to me that you've been working really hard on this along with your team, of mm-hmm. course, and really trying to make sure on this particular topic, and I guess on all other topics within FSC as well, that FSC really becomes this dialogue platform and this platform for solutions mm-hmm. So is there anything that you hope that other countries will pick up from what you've done in Canada? Well, it's already happening. I mean, Pamela has been quite involved with the design of the the approach of EPIC internationally with the new guidance. We have also the Indigenous Foundation now that's been created by by FSC 
and with Pepsi. So I'm confident that the, the, the principle of uh, UNDRIP and, and FBIC will, will find its way across the FSC system. Is there anything that you're hoping that the wider public as such will learn from what we're doing inside FSC in Canada on FBIC? Oh, definitely. More and more, the Canadian public is getting aware of the, uh, the UNDRIP requirement for Indigenous rights in this country. It's a constant conversation. The federal government now wants to implement UNDRIP into law. Not sure it's the perfect legal structure, but at least it's getting into that direction. And more and more, I think the Canadian uh, public in general wants to see our natural resources, not only forestry, but being managed with uh, the socially responsible approach upholding the Indigenous rights. And UNDRIP seems to be the only way to go forward. But also, let, let's focus on the market aspect as well, uh, Lua, is uh, the fact that the Canadian forest sector is becoming more and more value-added. And for that market, we need to present a pristine reputation. And it's impossible to achieve that reputation with very demanding market customers without uh, strong implementation of UNDRIP and uh, the social license respecting the rights of First Nations and Indigenous people. And along with the the other requirements of protecting intact forest landscapes and, and biodiversity. And I think it's there's no other way to go for the future of the forest sector in this country. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. And I'm, I'm completely confident that you're right, that we will move from just being commodity-based into being more holistically in our approach to the value of forest management and the entirety of what mm-hmm. forests can give to us. Pamela, one final question for you. Is there anything that you would hope that others inside FSC, outside FSC, around the globe would copy from the Canadian approach? I think one of the most powerful aspects of making not just principle three and FPIC work in Canada, but really creating a world-class FS standard as a whole. One of the important aspects that FSC Canada has and continues to have is the fourth chamber. Mm-hmm. And I've heard from other national offices, perhaps speaking in awe and great respect for Canada for being able to hold a fourth chamber. But then there's also questions about ability and capacity and how do we encourage fourth chambers, Indigenous chambers, in countries where the social cultural situation is quite different than Canada or, say, New Zealand, mm-hmm. who's moving in that direction as well. So. I think ultimately, regardless of who is in the chamber and and the the politics and the challenges of chamber membership, the fact that it's at the highest level and that fourth chamber is the opportunity, to use the analogy of the table, the table is set that the voices can be at the highest level of decision-making in a national office is something that I would encourage other FSC offices around the world to to strongly consider and think about. Because when the decisions to operate at that level are again role-modeled, the good practice, best practices can only be mirrored as 
the standard get implemented on the ground. So forest companies can be very confident in the Canadian context that what is in the standard has been informed by a fourth chamber, that another set of eyes, a critical set of eyes, have looked at not just principle three and not just the seven-step process, but has looked at protected areas in principle six, has looked at high conservation forest values in principle nine. And I think forest companies in Canada know that, and there's confidence that can be built in that. And with that confidence, it's a great starting point, a great leverage point to tackling the high demand process of free prior informed consent. And I think that's uh, an important takeaway that I would encourage other FSE groups around the world to, to take from the Canadian example. Thank you both very much for, for participating in this interview and for giving me much more insight into what free and prior informed consent means and why it's so important that we get this right. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you for asking. That's it. I hope you now know a lot more about free prior informed consent. I know I at least do. This is a hugely complex topic and will take us time to get it right all over the world. But it's crucially important that we keep learning from the areas where we've actually had success and we keep duplicating that to other parts of the world. And it gives me hope that in Canada they have solved some of the really hard challenges. This was all that we had for you today. If you want to stay in touch with us or follow our work, I strongly encourage you to join our LinkedIn group. It's called FSC Digital Innovation and it's open for everyone. You can also always get in touch with me on digitalinput at fsc.org. I'm Laura Wern and this was Forest for the Future. <laughs>